Welcome to Working Sober, the podcast that empowers high achievers like yourself to take control of their drinking habits and maximize their career success. I'm your host, Melissa. Working Sober is here to inspire and support you on your journey. So sit back, relax, and let's get started. Hey there, welcome back to Working Sober. Today I'm very excited to present to you the first guest episode of the podcast, my conversation with the lovely Kay Allison. Kay Allison is an award-winning innovator and entrepreneur. She was a professional success as a senior VP of a global ad agency and was personally riddled with shame when she went alcohol-free in 1999. And in 1999, Kay was a single mom and her drinking escalated to the point where she decided to go alcohol-free. Since then, Kay has increased her income 600%. She's met and married a man that she's still crazy about 21 years later, helped Fortune 200 companies generate $2 billion in new revenue. She's adopted a child, written two books, invented four successful businesses, which we definitely touch on in this podcast, and she's traveled around the world and moved to her dream town of Boulder, Colorado. Most importantly, she is happy with herself. I'm so excited to bring this conversation to you. We talk about rediscovering your fun in sobriety. We discuss Kay's journey with going alcohol-free back in 1999 and what that was like. Talk about building businesses, how her career changed off the back of her removing alcohol from her life, and how Kay truly lives a juicy AF life, which is the title of her book. So excited to bring you this conversation with myself and Kay Allison. Hello, Kay, and welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to have you here. Melissa, this is going to be such a fun conversation. Thanks for the invitation. No problem. Whenever you reached out to me on Instagram saying if there's anything that you could do to support me or just help me in any way on this journey, I was like, we need to have a conversation. But I think that we should record this conversation because I'm sure so many women are going to find it so valuable to hear how you've created such a massive amount of success with your career off the back of quitting drinking. Because that's really what this podcast is centered on. It's sharing the stories of really amazing successful people who have done amazing things with their career after quitting drinking because life doesn't stop whenever you quit drinking you realize so many things about yourself so um you quit drinking in 1999 i really did yeah i did i've been sober for about a lifetime at this point (laughs) but you know before i got sober i had career success you know i was chasing external validation. I thought that I would finally be okay inside if I was the youngest vice president. Oh, I did that and I still wasn't okay inside, you know. I thought if I ran a big advertising account, I'd be okay inside. And I did that and I wasn't okay inside. And so it became this um, treadmill of always needing to accomplish more. So, you know, I I hear stories of people that are in recovery where they're, you know, they really um, had a lot of external things taken away from them. That was not my experience. Yeah, I can really relate to that. And I could relate to what you were saying there about chasing those accomplishments. And it almost everything looked great on the outside for me, too. I was doing my PhD at a prestigious, you know, top university whenever I quit drinking. So on the outside, everything looked good. But, you know, on the inside, you're struggling, you know. Um, how did you decide that it was time to quit drinking? What What did your drinking look like? Well, um, <laughs> so it started 
uh, as like a Friday, Saturday night kind of thing. But even from the get go, when I drank, I I never knew how much I was going to consume. And I'd kind of gotten uh, used to that and had started planning around that. So for instance, um, I had lived in the suburbs of Chicago and realized driving home up the expressway kind of with one hand over one eye so I wasn't seeing double and you know, like that was probably not so smart. So I moved into the city so that I could, I mean, it was in the 90s, so that I could take a taxi home. So I was planning around that and I'd kind of gotten, I don't know what's the word, kind of inured to that reality of the way that I drank. But what started happening with you know, the way I was drinking is it wasn't just Friday and Saturday. It was Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And then it was Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And then, oh my God, I had clients in town. Let's go out for drinks on Tuesday. Like it started becoming more frequent. And um, what really, there were two things that put me over the edge. One was um, I was a single mom at the time and I had these gorgeous, intelligent, wonderful, lovely human beings that, um, you know, I had the privilege of being the mom to. And one night uh, I had decided I wasn't going to drink and had a glass of champagne at 1030 and they had to undress me and put me to bed. And I was done. The look of disappointment in their eyes and the look of my disappointment in myself I I was completely done. Part of it was, it was so out of character with how I thought about myself as a mom. But the second thing was, while I'd gotten used to the fact that once I started drinking, I didn't know what was going to happen. But I realized that I was drinking when I did not want to. And that freaked me out. It's like, oh my God, I can't control when I stop. And once I start, I can't control what happens. That means I am fundamentally out of control all the time. Totally. I completely relate to that. I had to stop drinking during the weekdays because it was just so unpredictable. Once I had started or taken one at happy hour or whatever it was, it was just so easy to keep going. And then you just find yourself getting hung over the next day and the next day I was ruined at work and you're just getting through. And then sometimes you're like, well, will I just have a drink this evening? And it's just a cycle that you can fall into so, so easily. I'm, I'm wondering what, what it was like to quit drinking in the late nineties, because nowadays like I quit drinking three years ago. And even then there were a lot of sobriety Instagram. There was Instagram, right? There was right. social right. media. Well, that. There that was the thing. internet, right? <laughs> yeah, like, and it's almost a bit easier nowadays with that shield of anonymity that we have with the internet. We can kind of be secretly reading these blogs or hearing these experiences. But I mean, back in the late 90s, probably the only way that you could have heard those stories that resonated with you was if you were in the rooms or going to yep. AA, or I'm not yep. even sure if there were any other options, or an addiction counselor. You know, uh, I have an older sister who had gone to AA, and so I figured that's what she did. And so I screwed up my courage, and I walked into an AA meeting. 
Um, the first meeting I went to, I remember as being like a bunch of homeless guys and I was the only white person in the room. And I, I think I was one of the two or three women and it scared me so much. But one of the women sitting next to me uh, got me a meeting guide and opened it and showed me that the next night there was a meeting that was a half a block from the townhouse I was renting. And so I, I was like, well, okay. So I went to that meeting and it was women that were career women. You know, it was in the Gold Coast of Chicago. They were successful. They were professional. They dressed well. They had families. They had careers. They drove nice cars. I mean, that kind of stuff was, they carried Louis Vuitton bags. I cared about that stuff. And um, it was like, oh my God, there are women that are not only like me, but who are aspirational to me that are sober. And that blew my mind. Yeah. And that's, that's what kept me coming back. That is incredible that you were able to find that group because had that woman not shown you where it was, you probably would have never stumbled across it because it's not advertised, you know? I, I feel like know. back then it must have been so difficult to seek out those support systems because it was even more taboo and unspoken about than it is today. Yeah, and interestingly, in an early meeting that I walked into, there was this gorgeous woman at the front who was telling her story. And I knew her professionally. She was in my field and she was more accomplished and a little bit older than I was. And she was telling the story about being in her living room with her husband and her boyfriend and the police and at 3 a.m. And she like threw back her hair and she laughed. And at the time, I mean, I remember being viscerally shocked because I was like, oh, we don't talk about that, right? And um, she represented and embodied to me freedom from alcohol for sure, but freedom from shame and freedom from hiding and freedom from pretending that everything was okay. And I was riveted and... Um, I wanted to be her then and today I want to be that woman to other women. That is incredible. And it's true that just seeing somebody else who resembles you or that you can see yourself in, it's so important because I literally remember the very moment. There was like a moment that punctuated life before me realizing that other people felt the same way that I did. Other people like me, air quotes, felt the same way that I did because in the past I had always thought that like there was something wrong with me because I wasn't an alcoholic, but I wasn't a normal drinker and I hadn't been introduced to that concept of like gray area drinking. And I remember scrolling on my phone, it, I was, it was during work, um, I was working as a behavioral therapist and this was like three years before I actually quit drinking, but I was scrolling through my phone and I found a Vice article that was speaking about anxiety. And I was like, anxiety after drinking? Wait, there's a reason this happens? Like, I'm not alone in this? And it was such an incredibly freeing moment that helped lift a lot of the shame that I had because shame can't exist in silence. And when you realize that there's other people who are going through what you're going through and you speak about your story more, it just lifts those layers of shame. Um, how, so you... Was that primarily the resource that you used to help you quit drinking? 
Yeah, that's what there was. I mean, yeah. it never occurred to me to go to treatment. Like I wasn't that bad. I wasn't that bad. Do you know what I mean? Like, and I didn't even know treatment was a thing. This is the only thing I knew. And so that's what I did. What I have found is that um, the steps are great for men whose egos need puncturing, less great for women who come in in shame. And so what I have done over the 23 years that I've been sober and helping people um, is to several things. You know, there are things in AA that work, the community, the service, the spiritual antidote. Um, but the, the steps themselves, I find, are at their worst harmful for women because they're based on ego puncturing and we walk in already thinking that we are not very great. Um, and so what I've adapted is this idea of, first of all, getting down to what those old stories are and then substituting spiritual principles in their place. And that's the crux of the transformation that I've had and that I've helped other women have. And it is kind of true the way that they say with AA, take what you need and leave the rest. Like there's definitely elements that you can resonate with and other parts where you're like, that's definitely not me. Um, could you get more specific about maybe one of the steps that you are referring to when you talk about how it's more relating to men? So there are um, there are two that really come to mind. It's the fourth step, which is we take a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. And the 10th step, which is continue to take inventory and when we are wrong, promptly admitted it. Neither one of those sounds like a bad thing. It's when they label uh, you know, our part and the problems that we have in the fourth step as being character defects. Yeah. You know, for women, I just find that most women's stories are, I don't count, I'm not good enough, everybody else is more important than I am, and the only way I can feel good about myself is going and rescuing everybody else and accomplishing wild amounts of things so that you think that I've got it together. Mm. Those are the stories that I hear most commonly from women. And continuing in the 10th step to tell ourselves where we're selfish, resentful, dishonest, and afraid deepens that hole of I'm not good enough, I'm not good enough, I'm not good enough. And so um, it's not that it's a, a problem to take a look at yourself and find how you were complicit in the problems in your life, but to continue to tell yourself, berate yourself and punish yourself for oh. your inadequacies to me only digs our problem deeper rather than providing an antidote. Mm, that's so interesting um, to consider because I'm I haven't done AA and I don't know anybody really who has in the in at least my sober circle. So it's so interesting to hear your take on all of that. And I'm sure that there's so many women listening who are resonating with that too. The whole character defect and that could perhaps in some cases be more harmful than helpful because we do want to move on and we do want to forgive ourselves and we want to be coming from a place of enoughness and not a place of inadequacy or insufficiency. And I think that what these steps are grounded in is just so important. So 
Could you tell me a bit about your what your career started looking like once you were quitting drinking? Because you what what um, job were you in at the time? You mentioned like I, meeting with clients and drinking with clients. So how did that all play out? I was a senior vice president of a global ad agency when I got sober. And um, I was a single mom. And uh, I had a lot of responsibilities. And I remember distinctly thinking, oh, my God, I wish I could put all of this on hold while I spend 30 days and kind of get acclimated into this new alcohol-free world, but that was not my circumstance. And um, so I would go to a 6 a.m. AA meeting while my kids were still sleeping. I'd come home at seven, get them up, get them to school, work my whole day, take care of them at night. Um, And that's the way I integrated sobriety into my life. And starting my day with being like spiritually centered and honest was such a helpful way for me to live. Um, what's what happened was I had created a uh, a way for my ad agency to um, help our existing clients create innovation that generated a ton of revenue for the clients. And then de facto, the agency would become their ad agency. And this methodology that I created was so powerful. It just, it worked like crazy. And um, it was bringing in about a million dollars a year in revenue. My My company was not paying me any of that. And so it dropped directly to their bottom line, which they loved. And um, I got a job offer. I mean, it was like 2000. And so this was the internet bubble. And so I got this job where I got a job offer for a, a position that was paying twice as much. And it was in the digital marketing area. Um, and I went to the CEO of this global company whom I didn't trust and um, was intimidated by. And I remember talking to a woman in my alcohol-free circle, and she was like, look, I'm not a business negotiator. I can't tell you what to say, but I can tell you, practice these three spiritual principles, honesty, sincerity, and courage. And write those down on your notepad that you're bringing into the meeting. And I did. So before I walked in there, Melissa, I was sure that they are going to want to own a percentage of the company. And I was sure that they were going to, because I was taking that methodology and I wanted to break it out and do my own thing. And I walked out of there. I practiced those principles to the best of my ability. And I walked out of there with a half a million dollar contract. Wow. Which was, I couldn't have even walked in there with that concept of that even being a remote possibility. And so, I mean, cause I said, I told them the truth. I'm like, look, I'm really an entrepreneur. I have this other job offer. I can go and do that and bankroll, you know, half of it, live on what you're paying me. I can bankroll that for two years, but what I'd rather do is keep my relationships with you. And, you know, is there any way that we can make that happen? <laughs> oh my goodness. That woman gave the best advice ever. <laughs> That woman in your group. 
that's when I was like, oh my gosh, practicing these spiritual principles puts me in some divine flow that I don't have access to on my own. And that was my first kind of experience of how it, what it feels like to me is when I act in accordance with spiritual principles, there is a flow that happens in my world that unlocks things that I could never have imagined. Amazing. And you had a lot of career success before sobriety too. Did I this did. did this success that you had of, you know, making this deal, did that success feel any different to you? Did you notice any difference? Yeah, because in the before times, <laughs> everything that I achieved was for external validation. And this was, I felt so in alignment with a greater purpose. Mm. And I felt like, um, I really truly felt like it was what I was supposed to be doing. I didn't feel grasping. I mean, I had two kids in private school that I was paying 100% for. So a weird time to be starting a business. But um, I felt so, I was afraid, but I also really spent time assessing what was riskier. Was it riskier to stay where I was and have my family's financial wagon hitched to these guys at the top that I didn't trust? Or could I actually trust myself? Yeah, and, and that feels way better way better and my income within a couple of years was 600% more than what I was making as a senior VP of a global ad agency. That is phenomenal even to just I don't even I can't even picture what that means in my head 600% increase but um, what you were just speaking about with regards to external validation I've kind of in full transparency been going on a bit of a journey with that recently because I did you know, I, I went through academia. I was always doing the next degree. I did my bachelor's. I did actually, I did two bachelor's at the one time. I did a double major. <laughs> so um, it's giving me away a little bit here. But yeah, so I did my bachelor's, my master's, and then I got to do my PhD for free as I was working as a researcher for a top university. And then at the end of 2021, I decided to go off and start my own business. And this was just about a year and a half into getting sober and quitting drinking. And it's it really just shines, like being your own boss really shines a light on your own relationship that you have with money, external validation, the numbers. And I realized that I was giving the numbers so much significance and kind of chasing, chasing, chasing. It didn't feel in alignment. And up until very much, like very recently, where I, I kind of switched my goal from making X amount of money to my goal being to become a better leader and to help as many people as possible, because I can do that every day. I can't, you know, I'm only a certain amount. I only have a certain amount of control over the income that I bring in every day because I work with clients and different things like that. But I have 100% control over reaching those two goals every day. And it feels a lot more in alignment and it doesn't feel graspy and it doesn't feel like you're just chasing something that's never. And I have achieved financial goals that I've made, but I felt horrible because I haven't even given myself a second to celebrate that because I was always on to the next thing. Yeah. 
Yeah, I I think the difference was my orientation. I mean, I worked with Fortune 200 companies, and my orientation was in love and service to draw out their humanity and their intuition. And I can do that all day long. Yeah. And I learned how to translate that into the business things that they were trying to achieve and the business objectives that if they met them, they were going to get rewarded and be able to send their kids to college. Like I just came at it with, um, I call it the Copernican shift, right? Remember Copernicus, he was the one that said, no, no, the sun doesn't revolve around the earth. It's the earth that revolves around the sun. And when I was grasping to achieve before I, I stopped drinking, it was always me in the center of the universe trying to convince the sun to do what I wanted it to do. And when I started my own company, I put my clients in the center of the universe and I orbited them in, in love and service and mm, completely different experience. That's a, such a beautiful analogy and a beautiful way to put it. I'm definitely going to consider that the next time that I'm getting in that spiral because it's a journey. It's not like one day I just decided, no longer am I going to be validated by anything outside of myself. Like it's not, it's a journey and it's taking time for me to wrap my head around, but I'm in a much better place than I was. Um, so then you you made that change and... Then you went and you started a, a food company, was it? <laughs> God, I have done so. You can tell I have ADD, <laughs> you know? I had an innovation company. Um, I met and married the love of my life after I got sober. And um, he and I started a focus group facility in Chicago. And that lasted for 17 years. Um in the course of our lives, we adopted a child. And uh, with my consulting business, my first company, I was traveling globally about 50% of the time. And it was not working for my family. So I wound that consulting business down and took some time off, which was really mind-bending for me because I was career girl K. I think I was born with a briefcase in my hand, you know, like <clears throat> a lot of my identity was about being a successful career person. But taking those five to seven years with a giant step back professionally allowed me to understand that people are attracted to me for my energy and who I am rather than what I do or what I've accomplished. And it took me five years to get there. I just said it in 30 seconds, but it took me a long time to like come to that realization. We're um, glossing over a lot of personal development here in about yes. 10 minutes. <laughs> yes, we are. And uh, we moved to Boulder, Colorado, which is the you know epicenter of natural food um, companies in America. Um, most of my clients in my consultant consulting companies were food. It was Kraft and Mondelez and Pepsi and Conagra and Campbell Soup and all the big food companies. And so I was like looking at some of these people that had successful little businesses and I was like, I can do that. Turned out it is a lot harder than it looks. Um, and so I did. I started a, a natural, uh, you know, snack food company that fortunately I was able to sell in uh, 2020. 
What was that process like of selling a business that you had created? <laughs> I was so happy they were taking it because I was so tired. I was so tired of it. Um, you know, my business partner did a lot of the negotiating. Uh, he had much more of the connection and more of those skills. And I just kind of prayed every day that it was going to work. You seemed, it seemed like you have a knack for running businesses because now you have a very successful business, Juicy AF, along with your book. I'd love to um, have a chat now about how that came about. How did you start that community and and write this book and have this amazing um, movement that you have going on? Well, I would say I'm good at starting businesses. I would take exception with the idea that I'm good at running them. I always need to have a lot of help with that. Um, so my husband is also an entrepreneur and he's also alcohol free. And um, he and I, at the beginning of the pandemic, really got concerned about what was happening. And so we we sold all of our companies mm-hmm. and our property and we just, we wanted to be in cash, which is a really fortunate place. We were in such a fortunate place. And um, so, you know, it it really opened up and our youngest child went to college. So all of a sudden, well, the first 20 years of my sober experience and my marriage were really about, you know, raising kids and and starting businesses and growing businesses. Um, We were left in the question of now what? Now what? And fortunate, you know, I'm in such a fortunate position where it's not revenue first. It, It does, you know, I'm in a position where it's, what conversation do I want to be in for the next 20 years? Yeah. And what I have found, I actually started an A meeting, uh, a Zoom A meeting at the beginning of the pandemic. And it's every day uh, towards the end of the afternoon, beginning of the evening, I started for my girlfriends and me. And today it has, 70 to 80 people there every day, 365 days a year. It's just insane. Global, you know, men and women, it's just nuts. And when I started seeing people come in green and crying and broken, and you see their face up close on Zoom, you can see their eyes and, you you know, it's a daily meeting. So you see them every day. Yeah. And, and to see people come in green and broken and crying and, uh, green skinned, you know, and a couple days later, the lights kind of on behind their eyes and then their skin kind of pinks up and then they're handling things differently and their family is different. And it, it was the most rewarding besides raising my kids. So rewarding to me. So like, there's something about being in the presence of a miracle like that, that, and like any good addict, I'm like, oh, that feels good. I want more. Um, but truly, I'm at, you know, I'm at the point in my life. I spent almost 40 years raising kids and making money. And I'm at the point in my life where I want to be, I want that same feeling that I had when I started my first business, aligned in love and service. And um 
uh, truly, I feel like women that are in that, oh my God, is my drinking bad enough for me to take a break? Just really need to be wrapped in so much love and compassion. And I love being able to show up like that for people. Yeah, it almost, as difficult as it was to quit drinking, I almost have a fond nostalgia for that period of whenever I finally gained some momentum, I was like 30, 40 days sober because you're, you're literally so confident and so proud of yourself and you've just went through this massive storm. And to be able to watch other women go through that and be and come out the other side must just be so rewarding and so it's, meaningful. It's a privilege, you know, for people to show up and be their most vulnerable sense. So, you know, my spiritual journey has actually taken me into clairvoyant training and I'm a licensed minister, but not pedantic. And I say the F word a lot and, you know, yeah, whatever. Like I, now I feel like I have to backpedal. No, it's not the way you think. Um, but what those explorations and that learning has done for me, that integration is I can hold space for people and be okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you're not getting anything from them. It's not a transactional relationship at all. I think that's really key as well. Yeah. And you know, on a practical level, lest we drift off into, you know, not being grounded, I also know that people value what they pay for. Mm -hmm. People value what they pay for. And I think that people in the healing, helping professions, we get really shy about asking for money. And the way I think about it is that it is a flowing relationship where, where I provide is leadership and creativity and um, relationship. And what I need to be able to show up to do that is money and people showing up on time and people open and willing to take some new actions. And so it becomes this virtuous cycle. Um, <clears throat> I think that many people in the healing helping professions are very shy about charging and um, <clears throat> I don't think it does a service I don't think it does a service for that relationship yeah because there's people with all different levels of income and if somebody is used to paying high levels and high amounts of money for different services or different even just food going out experiences they it almost requires them to pay a more, a higher amount for somebody to help them. Otherwise it's like, it's not an energetic match. They won't show up and it, it won't matter as much to them. There's not as, mu as much skin in the game if they're not paying at a price that fits in with their identity, their lifestyle and how much they're used to paying, definitely. Yeah, <clears throat> that's exactly what, I, what I've learned. And there's so many different price points for I'm a coach too. And this is something that I've had to experience with pricing and, you know, finding um, the value that I offer and making sure that I'm offering my services at a price that my clients will find valuable. And there's honestly, nowadays, there's so many different coaches, different communities from free to paid to very well paid that you can engage in that is going to match a budget for you but at the end of the day people who pay pay attention 
So I agree with that. Plus, I'm really clear about specific outcomes that my coaching clients are going to experience. I'm very clear about um, tangible things that they will experience, that they value. And so what they're paying for, I always cringe a bit when I hear people say, um, I need to get paid what I'm worth. That is not what people are buying. People are buying you solving a problem that they care about for them or helping mm -hmm. them solve that problem themselves. And I think that the notion of being paid what you're worth puts us right back in that external validation conversation that you and I have both experienced and you know, on, on different days, each of us are in different places with. So, you know, I would really suggest to your listeners that if you're not getting paid what you feel is making your life worth, you got to offer something that's more valuable to people. Yeah. And our worthiness is 100%. We don't need to price what we're worth because we're worth 100% all of the time. But and it's detaching our self value from our business value or our employment value, I think is key, as you said there. Um, so tell me a bit about your book. Oh, my book. So uh, you said before that one of the that shame can't live in conversation or something like that or in honesty. I feel like shame can also not exist where there's amusement. And so my book is on purpose written with a pretty cheeky style. Uh, it's upbeat. I make fun. I laugh about myself in the book. Um, and it's very conversational. It's, it's yeah. like sitting here and having this conversation with me. So it has three parts. The first is for women that are in that gray area drinking, which I think you and I both were, mm -hmm. <clears throat> where there are several ways to really assess for you to assess for yourself if your drinking is in alignment for you or if it isn't. No judgment. The second is for the women that are trying to put the drink down for seven days or whatever it happens to be. And it's really practical stuff like how to de-stress without a drink, <clears throat> how to sail through sticky situations by writing scripts for those social situations that you're dreading to be in without a drink in your hand. It's setting up your environment so that when you have the impulse to pick up, there's nothing there, you know, yeah. it's, it's just a way of and populating your social media so that you're following people that are out, outwardly sober. So very tangible, practical, action-based things punctuated by stories from my life. And then the third section is really about transforming your, your life and yourself and embodying your better self, your ideal self. And I suggest that there are five spiritual laws at work in the universe that are as powerful and as invisible as gravity. And once you uncover them and work and act in alignment with them, unbelievable things transform in your life, manifest in your life. Um, because 
spiritually, I truly believe that as within, so without. And um, so it's very much in alignment with what we've been talking about. Yeah, like attracts like, right? At the end of the day. So I will definitely link the book in the show notes of this podcast along with Kay's links. Um, but you said something there about scripting which I find super helpful for myself, but also for my clients, because there's some people where you'll tell them, oh, visualize, visualize. But for some people, visualization just, it doesn't work for them. And I found that scripting is super helpful. And an exercise that I love to do with my clients is to have them script out what a typical Friday night or whatever night that you would normally drink would look like from when you wake up till when you take a drink after the drink and then flip the page and script out what it's going to look like without drinking. And a lot of us, what we do is we imagine that we're not going to have cravings. It's going to be a perfect day. We're going to get eight hours of sleep. The kids are going to be fine. Boss is going to be in a great mood. But that's why it's so important to have that other version of what the night would have looked like. Because you'll be able to pick out different triggers, thoughts, feelings that you're probably still going to have and be able to script out how you're going to respond to them. I yeah, I love that. Helpful <laughs> exercise. I I also find that all of us have like a dreaded scenario that we just can't imagine not having a drink in our hand during. For me, it was being out with clients or with um, friends and the waiter asking me first, what do you want to drink? You know, yeah. you're in the headlights moment. And so what I found is having two or three memorized responses keeps me from being panicked in the moment and reduces my anxiety before I walk into that scenario. Yeah, I literally remember practicing out loud what I was going to say if somebody asked me for a drink because we I would do this thing in the past and I actually quit drinking during the pandemic so I had a lot of time to practice what I would say <laughs> if someone asked me for a drink. But I we do this thing where it's like okay, I'm going to get a, you know, a club soda, club soda, club soda and then we get to the bar and we're like Chardonnay. Exactly. <laughs> automatically comes out. So I found that super helpful, like literally saying it out loud, what you're going to say and having a few backup options too, because if they're like, oh, we're out of Diet Coke, they'll be like, oh, I'll get a, uh, you know, red wine, <laughs> you know? It's just exactly. Yeah. Is there any, are there any other tips and tricks while we're on this subject that really helped you when you were quitting? Having fun had my definition of what was fun had to change. Mm, yeah. And um, and so what I did and what I work with my clients to do is I call it the joy finder to literally make a list of every activity you see people doing on Instagram or you hear about or you read about or you see videos of make a list and do them experiment. My approach to learning how to live alcohol-free is to set up a series of experiments. Mm. You're a researcher. You know what I mean. <laughs> you set it up and you go and you try it. And you and then I give people a way to think about that experience and sort through it to decide what parts of that actually were okay and what parts of that were really not cool and what else might have those good parts but not the bad parts right so i have a client who was like bungee jumping no 
snowboarding? Absolutely, you know? And, and I find that really, you know, my fun tends to happen now before 8 p.m. or 9 p.m., where my fun used to happen after 9 p.m. Yeah. And then the sleep was ruined. <laughs> I relate. Yes. Exactly. You know, the sleep was completely ruined. And that's that's so helpful. I it helps me to think about what did I used to enjoy doing whenever I was younger. Because before drinking, I had so many hobbies. I was in the choir, I played lacrosse, cross country, swimming, I was a lifeguard, um, played the piano, like I loved coloring whenever I was younger. Just there's so many things that I'm re-exploring now that I've quit drinking that I used to love doing. Dancing is one of them that I've recently figured out I love. There's um, This is not sponsored, obviously, but I got an iPad for Christmas. And when you buy an Apple product, you get three months of Apple Fitness Plus for free. So I was like, okay, I'll experiment with this. And I found out that they have amazing dance workouts with like ABBA, Beyonce, oh my God, I love all that. of them. And it's mm. incredible. And I honestly sometimes bring myself to tears doing this dancing because I used to love dancing in clubs and things like that, but I wouldn't remember it, you know? Um, and it's amazing to be able to rediscover your fun in sobriety. Absolutely. And if it's not better alcohol-free, why bother? Yeah. And so I absolutely insist on people finding joy and having amusement. It if if working with me were doom and gloom, I don't I don't think that I would be happy and I don't think I'd be doing a service. We have this idea in our culture from the time of Freud that our current state is determined by what happened to us when we were kids. And that there's pretty much a straight line. But research that was done um, in about 2013 shows that contrary to that belief, it's actually our sense of our ideal future self that has more power over how we are today, how we feel today, what we do today, as well as the meaning that we give stuff that happened in our past. But most of us don't have a vision of our ideal future self. And beyond the, you know, where do you see yourself in five years kind of thing? No. And so I encourage my clients to, as you were saying, to write the script of, what's your dream day? Where do you wake up? What do you see out your window? Who's next to you? What, you know, do you smell coffee? Do you smell bacon? Like, like, let's go through this moment by moment on a multi-sensory experience. Not just what's happening and what conversations are you in, but how are you taking care of yourself? And how do you respond to challenges? And how do you show up in relationships? And what are your attitudes and your habits? And how does it feel inside your skin? And, and I have them create such a compelling vision of themselves that it makes everything else shift and it makes it easier to change a habit than, oh, I shouldn't. Oh, I shouldn't sit on the couch. No, my ideal future self does watch Netflix on occasion, but oh my God, I'm outside in nature and I see, I mean, seriously, I see Fox outside my window some days and like, I, I just find that that is something that most people 
don't have. And I would submit that without that, we're stuck, we're mired in the past. Yeah, because our brain is constantly searching for evidence that what we believe is true. And so a lot of that evidence that we look for is in our past. And we assume that because it happened in our past, our brain tries to predict that that's what's going to happen in the future. And so we just keep ourselves stuck in those cycles. I I remember I was reading, well, I was listening to an audiobook called Playing Big by Tara Moore. I'm not sure if you know it. Oh, I love that. Yeah. And um, she has an amazing book. Everyone should go read it or listen to it. it. It speaks a lot about your inner critic and your inner mentor. And it's about how the most common thing that she sees women struggling with is their fear or their belief that they're not playing big enough, whatever that means in their life. But they, in the book, she does a meditation and it's a future self meditation. And prior to this, this was probably like a few years ago, um, it was after I quit drinking, but I was doing that meditation and I realized that I had never prior to that really visualized what my, what I wanted my future to look like. And it was crazy. The amount of insight that I got just from lying on my bed and doing this meditation. She puts you 15 or 20 years into the future. So it's not like, you know, 40, 50 years into the future. It's like when I'm like 40 or 45 years old, what house do I live in? Who greets me at the door when I walk in? What job do I have? Do I have kids? Do I not have kids? Where do I live? Like there's so many questions. And I realized in that meditation that I was living in a city at the time. I realized I wanted to live in the country. I realized that I did not want to work in research anymore. That was really <laughs> solidified for me then. And I wanted a career where I could travel and engage with different groups of people, create content online, which I loved doing, and have really amazing and meaningful one-on-one -on -one conversations, which I wasn't getting from doing research because I was just writing and reading and meeting with my supervisor like once every month or two. So it's crazy how much insights, how many insights you can get just from doing those simple meditations. And I'm a Pisces, so I'm a dreamer, you know? I like to do that stuff. And it's just fun to do. I think on some level, we all know. And that sense of shame and unworthiness keeps us, kept me, I'll speak for myself, from even thinking that my life today was possible. And today I am living what was my ideal future life. I live in my dream hometown. I'm married to a guy that I am more honest with than I've been in any relationship. And we laugh more <laughs> and have such a great time together. I get to hike, I get to ski, my grown kids, like me and like being with me and that's pretty great you're living the dream of my future self okay <laughs> <laughs> and really having this dream is i didn't know how exact i knew a first step or two but i didn't know how this was going to be manifest today my ideal future self i can see myself i'm on stage and i'm talking to a group of 2000 or 5000 women i know what i'm wearing i know who's in the wings that i can see and uh you know i have no idea how that's going to come about yeah but that's one of the beauties of it 
is to detach from the how and to just hone in on the feeling that you get when you're up on stage or when you hold your child or whatever your your dream is. And I also heard another helpful way of doing this is actually to reverse it. So there's a speaker called named da Dean Graziosi. I think he's Tony Robbins' right-hand man. But um, he says to disturb yourself with inaction and vision, envision your life 5, 10, 15 years from now if nothing changes. And sometimes that can be a motivating factor. Like that's definitely what happened to me before I was off visualizing my future, my future self. I was disturbed with um, what happens if nothing changes here? What happens if I'm stuck in a research job, still struggling with my drinking five, 10 years from now, and just having this fog and this cloud around my head every single day? So if if you're not quite at the place where you can visualize a successful future like that, write about what is it going to look like if nothing changes? Because then that'll point you to some of the things that you find important, your career, your your partner, your health, all of those things. I love that. I work with a woman who had this flash of, if I keep going like this, I'm going to be a fat old woman wearing a flannel shirt with a beer next to me and a TV remote in my hand. And if I change and give up my, and again, for her, it was gray area drinking. She saw herself dressed in white on a beach doing a yoga pose. <laughs> and that's yeah. what got her to quit. Yeah, it's different for everybody, right? But our emotions definitely drive our behaviors, our actions. So it was lovely talking with you today. And I'm going to link all of your details in the show notes. So everyone has to go check out Kay. But I wanted to close out this episode by asking you, what are you excited about professionally or personally in the next year? Well, two things. Um, I am starting my journey in speaking. So I'm starting to do some small scale events over the next few months and we'll create a speaker's reel so I can start to submit for some larger conferences. So very excited about that. <clears throat> I have an idea for a podcast that uh, will be very different than anything else that I see that's out there. And so we'll be working on that second half of the year. Um, personally, we're going to hike a bunch of 14ers here in Colorado this summer. And I just love the women that I work with. I think that another antidote to shame is being connected. And, and you know, for any of your listeners who are out there that are trying to figure this out on your own, I'm here to tell you, you don't, like you're doing it the hard way. Yeah. For the price of the discomfort of saying, I'm drinking more than I want to, which is uncomfortable. You know, the question is, do you want short-term pain or do you want long-term, low-grade pain indefinitely? Because it's uncomfortable either way. And I'd rather rip the bandaid off fast. And on the other side of saying that thing, there's camaraderie and joy and support and acceptance or suffer alone in silence. And I really urge the people that are listening to this to rip the bandaid off fast. Yeah, so well said. Well, thanks again for coming on. It was so nice to meet you. And I'm excited to see what's next for you. See what's 
popping up, those speaking events in the podcast. I'm looking forward to seeing all of that. Thanks, Melissa. This has been a great conversation. Thank you for listening to this episode of Working Sober. I hope that you found it informative and inspiring. Make sure you join our community over on Substack where we share resources, stories, and support for those navigating this transformational journey. To subscribe, simply visit workingsober.substack.com or head to the link in the show notes and enter your email address. It's completely free and you'll receive our latest newsletter directly in your inbox. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on your your favorite podcasting platform. It helps us reach more people who can benefit from our message. Thank you again for listening. And until next time, keep working sober and pursuing your dreams.